Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to a special one-year anniversary show of Unknown Orbits, the podcast that looks at the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. So here we are, one year later. We've gotten 50 episodes, 50 regular episodes under our belt, plus two special episodes, a Christmas and a Halloween episode. So that's your 52, making up one full year. So we're going to reflect back a little bit on our experience, but we're also going to talk a little more in depth about much more general topics like trying to define science fiction and talking about, from a writing standpoint, how we feel about science fiction. So, Steve, for you personally, what did you get out of doing this podcast for the last year? It was kind of a surprise. At one point in my life, my primary reading material was science fiction. I read a lot, and I believe I mentioned in the past, I read a lot of the magazine fiction, the short stories. I was very much into it. Then I moved away from it. And this podcast has reintroduced me to the old science fiction. And I've realized that I kind of miss those days of reading all the great authors, all the great stories, and it has renewed my interest in writing science fiction. Well, that's great. For me, coming into this, I was kind of the new guy. I mean, I had read science fiction when I was a kid. I read it alongside of horror and fantasy and regular kids' adventure fiction, and It was definitely a big part of my childhood. And then somewhere, you know, in my teen years, I just kind of dropped science fiction and moved away from it. And throughout most of my adult life was not really an avid science fiction reader. I did from time to time read the occasional science fiction novel like Dune, but really was not a significant part of my life. And now in this last year, I have significantly upped my consumption of science fiction and it's been wonderful. I've discovered writers like Cordwainer Smith and Alfred Bester. I've discovered great works of fiction, really classic works of science fiction. And again, as a writer, I also published my first science fiction novel this year, The Nowhere Navy. So it was really great and helpful to be working and writing in the science fiction genre at the same time that I was not only consuming all this terrific classic science fiction, but talking about it with you on the podcast and breaking it down and analyzing it and looking at it sometimes from the perspective of a writer. So it's been a wonderful combined experience. Just like you said, the reading and the writing together was really powerful. I'm glad. I feel as though I had some part in introducing you to science fiction. You did. It was great to have you as a resource. A great number of the stories and novels that we chose to do 
came from your personal recommendations, from your personal collection that you had made of some of your favorite stories. So that was clearly an influence on the whole thing, was your encyclopedic knowledge of all of these different writers and stories. Which I do want to admit at some point is not as complete as it used to be. And that in itself was an embarrassing surprise to me. I wouldn't view it as embarrassing. I think that's kind of enlightening. I mean, that's one of the things that I've taken away from this is I'm so impressed with the breadth and the scope and the sometimes brilliance of the world of science fiction in the golden age. I mean, I had sort of a cliched notion that a lot of the fiction published in the golden age was, you know, stereotypical and old-fashioned and corny and limited. And it's amazing to me how imaginative and well-written in many cases a lot of this stuff was. Very philosophical. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes to the detriment of the story, but a lot of really great ideas were very well explored and executed. Early on in the podcast, I believe we tried to come up with our own personal definition of what is science fiction, which is a favorite pastime of anybody in the science fiction fandom or field. And I don't even remember what my personal definition was. Maybe I should have gone back and listened to that episode. But I think my own personal definition has evolved somewhat over the last 12 months. So has mine. I think the challenge with defining science fiction is that it's really easy to define 80% of it. It's when you're trying to describe exactly where that line falls that everyone fails. Yeah, and you wind up shoehorning stuff into science fiction, and it kind of undermines your main argument. Yeah, until you're basically a Supreme Court justice saying, look, I know it when I see it, yeah. damn it. I'm glad you said that because I've got a quote. So I've got a couple of quotes from some figures in science fiction who themselves tried to define it. And we're going to start out with the esteemed John W. Campbell. His definition, to be science fiction, not fantasy, an honest effort at prophetic extrapolation from the known must be made. So that's John W. Campbell saying, in order to be a science fiction writer, you have to be a prophet. This is from the man, John W. Campbell, who deliberately published a story detailing the details of the atomic bomb in 1944, provoking the United States government into coming around to his office and throwing him up against the wall, metaphorically, and giving him the third degree. We discussed that in episode 20, a story deadlined by Cleve Cartmill, which accurately uh, predicted about one half of the technology of an atomic bomb. Okay. We're not going to rehash that argument. I, okay. But he did deliberately try to predict the future. And then when the atomic bomb went off a year later, he claimed credit saying, see, I told you so. I predicted that. I don't know if we said this in this episode, but my opinion eventually evolved that Campbell did this on purpose and his desire was to show the government how useful and smart and brilliant science fiction people were. And why he should have been chosen to be a leader in the military efforts yes. against the Axis powers. And then it all backfired on him. Yep. If you're interested in that discussion, go back to episode 20 and give it a listen, because we go into a lot more detail on that. But that's John W. Campbell saying, in order to be science fiction, it must be prophetic, which I don't agree with, and I don't think you do either. No. So here's a better quote from Frederick Pohl, who I think puts a closer finger on what science fiction should be, and it kind of 
goes against what Campbell said. He said, Someone once said that a good science fiction story should be able to predict not the automobile, but the traffic jam. I agree. That is a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah. Leave it to Frederick Pohl, who had a great sense of humor, to point out in a funny way a very important point about science fiction, that it's not so much about technology, which is what John W. Campbell probably would have felt was more important, that you had to get deeply immersed in the technology and be predictive in that way. Whereas Paul was like, no, it's not about the technology. It's about the technology's impact on people. The, and then what? And then what? You know, you invent this thing, then what happens to people? And that's right in line with the sort of writer and editor that Frederick Pohl was. So I love that particular one. But maybe the most accurate quote that I found defining science fiction was from Damon Knight when he said, science fiction is what I point to when I say science fiction. Okay. It's like what you said about the Supreme Court when they said, I don't know art, but I know it when I see it. That's accurate because there is this problem in defining science fiction of trying to shoehorn in something as broad as Star Wars and the hard science fiction of Astounding Magazine in the 1940s that was full of vacuum tubes. Yes, and Hal Clement. And Hal Clement. I'm going to give one more definition to give you an example of a really bad definition of science fiction. This is from somebody called Darko Suvin who apparently is some sort of critic or academic. Modern day? I think so. Okay. I just stumbled across this, and I thought it was the perfect example of a attempt to try to create a literary highbrow definition of science fiction. A literary genre whose necessary and sufficient conditions are the presence and interaction of estrangement and cognition, and whose main formal device is an imaginative framework alternative to the author's empirical environment. Oh, God. What the hell does that mean? That's that's a, yeah. <laughs> so that's a bad definition. You know, he wrote the basic definition and then spent like days thinking about it oh. and say, oh, that adjective needs to be oh, punched yeah, I'm, up. I'm sure he slaved for a week on that paragraph to get it just right, to get exactly the right words in there. Probably had like six pages of notes that went into constructing that paragraph. There's that, and then there's Damon Knight. It's what I point to when I say science fiction. There's a wide variety in between those two extremes. Frankly, I'm surprised Damon Knight had such a liberal attitude. They must have caught him on an evening when he had a couple of cocktails (laughs) in. And he was tired of people asking him to try to define science fiction. Science fiction is what I point to when I say science fiction. Now go fuck off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to throw a couple of ideas. You, you had some ideas that you contributed. We're just going to kind of play around with some of the aspects of science fiction to maybe come up with a definition. I don't know. Maybe we'll completely fail at it. Well, we'll cover that 80% at least. Yeah. We'll cover the 80% and then we'll fudge the, the final 20% probably. So is it about ideas? I think it is. I think to one degree or another, it's a literature of ideas, but there are other literatures of ideas. There's philosophical novels that have nothing to do with robots or spaceships. There's social commentary novels that talk about the ills of society and poverty. And there's the whole gender battles, war of the sexes. And those are all literature of ideas. So as a literature of ideas, what is it about science fiction that's distinct? Well, 
science fiction is not just a genre of science and future and technological ideas, but it's also an envelope to discuss very not science fiction ideas in the science fiction context. So you would have a story that's really about racism, but instead of being an earthbound story about racism, it's humankind encountering an alien race. That has racism in it. And there's racism involved in the interactions between humans and the aliens. So it's a parable. Yes, which I think some people believe that it is so-called safer to discuss issues that way. Well, I think it used to be. Certainly isn't anymore, but I think it used to be. I think it's easier when it's divorced from the original situation and say, okay, we're not going to discuss Southern Reconstruction. We're just going to talk about two races, one's black on the left half and one's black on the right half, and that's our story. I'm glad you brought up that example because that's exactly what Roddenberry did with Star Trek. Roddenberry had been a successful TV producer and writer prior to Star Trek, and he had run into problems with the censors, just as Rod Serling did. That's why Rod Serling created the Twilight Zone, so he could do the same thing that Roddenberry wound up doing in Star Trek, which is get away with talking about social issues by disguising it underneath all of this science fiction stuff. So, yes, that was very accurate in the 1960s, that you were limited and having discussions, at least in popular culture, of all of these different issues. And science fiction was a vehicle for being able to do that. Now, I don't think that same limitation applies anymore, but you still have a ton of modern science fiction that addresses issues of racism and gender and sexism and whatever. It remains a significant part of the genre. Now, that's one aspect of it. To me, an inherent part of a lot of science fiction maybe most science fiction, is the what-if component, the speculative part. That's why some people call science fiction speculative fiction. You come up with an idea, like let's say self-driving cars, and you write this in 1958. You invent the idea of a self-driving car. Well, then it's, well, what if? Self-driving cars all over America, how would that play out? Some aspect of the self-driving robot doesn't work the way it should, and you end up with a statewide traffic jam on all the freeways as a result of the programming. The the, the great Nebraska traffic jam. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that is a very key component of science fiction is the speculative element because it fits at least 80% of science fiction where you start out with something that's new and novel or even tried and true in science fiction, like the first warp drive being invented or time travel. You know, I mean, how many millions of time travel stories have we had? How do you write a novel time travel story? Well, you have to come up with an interesting little twist on it. And that starts the question of, okay, well, what if this happened with time travel? There's almost this push that anyone who writes science fiction has to put their own spin on the old standards. Like, what's my interstellar travel going to be like? How will that one work? Right. And as somebody who has had to wrestle with the technology of getting your characters from one part of the galaxy to the other in an efficient manner so you can tell a story, you have to wrestle with the technology to some degree, unless you're just purely not going to give a shit. Say, a magical warp device gets me through what I need, you know? There are plenty of stories that do that. Yeah, sure, and that's fine. And again, that falls into that 20%, which we'll talk about maybe in a bit here. But 
You brought up the idea of puzzle stories, which was much more prevalent in the past. Yeah. There was a lot of puzzle stories written in the 1940s, and Astounding Magazine, Campbell seemed to like those. So the problem solving or the puzzle stories, those are not exactly a what if, they're kind of a what if, but not in the same way that a what if of a time travel story would be. Well, I think they fall all over the place. I'm thinking of a few titles, and one is definitely unintended consequences. Uh, Another is following an unknown. Right. So something like Venus Equilateral series, which was a series of one problem-solving story after another. And then there was one other one we did, Galactic Gadgeteers by Harry Stein. That was episode nine. And that's a story where there's like a race to build two impossible gadgets at the same time. Uh, Two engineers have a bet. Yeah. And by total coincidence... Both of their suggestions are needed in the war. Yeah, they're in the middle of a war with the bad guys in space. And in the nick of time, the two engineers combine their efforts together and build the whatchamacallit that allows them to win the war. I love the fact that a big part of the story is creating a certain device, which was absolutely impossible in the 1940s. But if you said it to someone in the 1980s, they would say, yeah, I got one right here. Here you go. (laughs) So... That's something that's gone out of favor, I think, in science fiction, is the puzzle story, the problem-solving story. You know, I'm willing to bet if you were an anthologist and you contacted 20 prominent science fiction writers and said, hey, I'm doing an anthology of problem-solving or puzzle stories. Can you come up with one and contribute it? That would be great. I think that would have appeal. Yeah, I think it would. But I also think there's a reason why we don't see those old forms of stories anymore. Now, I'm going to go off into kind of a tangent, but I think this leads us into my argument that science fiction is a lot like the Western. Now, the Western became the Western when we had the Western expansion and people didn't know anything about the West, that they were still learning about the West. The old dime novels. Back in the 1800s, they had the dime novels where it was Davy Crockett killed a bear or Wild Bill Hickok shot six bad guys in one day, and that helped build the myth of the West. Yes, and people were learning about the West. After a few decades, they knew about the West, and the Western changed into being a background for dramas. Yes. Science fiction basically is about learning or discussing how we might handle the inventions of the future. And now, decades later, our technology has advanced to the point where, in a sense, we are in the science fiction world. So now science fiction is largely a background for dramas. That's an excellent point, because I can see exactly what you're saying. One of the things that I learned, which was fascinating to me in doing the background for all of these episodes that we did, is how controversial space travel was in the 1920s and the 1930s. People who were advocating for rocketry development and space travel were considered crazy by a lot of mainstream scientists. They were like, no, it's impossible to get people off of the Earth into space. You'd die immediately when you went into space. And Even the notion that a rocket has to push against something. Yeah, I mean, it's just basic stuff. Let's not forget that rockets in their current form did not exist in the 1930s. You had Robert Goddard, who was an early American pioneer of rocketry, 
building little slightly more than the Estes rockets that you and I talked about in one episode, you know, that we were playing with. I was going to say Estes. The technology was not that much different. So yes, in the 1930s, it was like fantasy. People regarded science fiction for a long time as this silly childish fantasy story about aliens and spaceships and traveling through the galaxy. And then along came World War II, where you had inventions like radar and the atom bomb, which punctuated the whole thing. And at that point, people started to go, okay, maybe these science fiction writers got something right. Maybe we should start listening to them. And then you had people like John W. Campbell taking that and running with it, saying, yes, you should listen to us because we're really smart people and we know what we're talking about. And Asimov promoted that basic idea. And then the 50s, rocketry became a real thing in the United States and the Soviet Union. We're in a rocket race and shooting satellites into space and putting men into space eventually. And you're right, it became a part of the background of our life. So if you look at the history of the Western, early on, it was simple morality plays. The good guys wore white hats, the bad guys wore black hats. Good guy defeated the bad guy and got the girl and rode off on a horse playing his guitar, singing a cowboy song. That was the early Western. And then it morphed into much more complex stories about the gray areas between morality and good and bad and whether or not the expansion into the West was a good thing. And I think maybe a test for both science fiction and the Western is if the story in there could be dropped into New York, no longer be a Western or science fiction, just be a drama and still make sense. I think that's a really good test because I think the vast majority of science fiction stories, that wouldn't work. You couldn't take a story like, well, I mean, Little Black Bag did take place in New York or something like that. Yes, but it has that science fiction element, which cannot be let go of. But it had the background of the future where the Black Bag originated, which is not New York. So it's a story that's not exclusive to New York. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's theoretically possible to write a science fiction story that takes place just in New York. I think of Coogan's Bluff. Do you remember that Clint Eastwood movie where he was this deputy from out west who was hunting a bad guy and he had to come to New York to find the bad guy and work with the local cops? And then it got made into uh, the TV show McCloud. I was thinking of McCloud. Yeah, that was kind of like a soft remake of that. Yeah, fish out of water. Yeah, so that was kind of a Western, but again, not really. I think we're starting to fall into that rabbit hole of trying to get a perfect definition. We both know what we mean when we ask, can we take the science fiction out of a story and still have it be a story? If you can do that, then science fiction is just an envelope for it. Yeah. So let's call it the New York envelope. I like the idea of the New York envelope because that ropes in a lot of the 20% that we might struggle with, like Star Wars. Could you have Star Wars take place in New York? No. Of course not. Could you have Dune take place in New York? No, of course not. The 20% that is hard to define as science fiction, a lot of it could fit into the New York envelope. Yeah. And that could help you complete the definition. So that's pretty good progress. And let's not forget, a writer with an idea is perfectly willing to write it as a romance or science fiction or whatever is buying right now. Yeah, I mean, you could do genre blends where you do a murder mystery with science fiction elements. 
like you have a murder mystery where one of the suspects is a robot. Yeah. You know, there you go. I think a crossover between mystery and science fiction is probably right. the most popular. Or you have a romance novel where a woman falls in love with a robot. Is that science fiction or is it romance? But it could happen in New York. But it could happen in New York. So I don't know. <laughs> it's not a perfect envelope, but it's helpful. So I kind of like that. I, I like the idea of, again, we get back to that definition from Damon Knight. It's what I point to when I say science fiction. Coming up with a perfect definition is so tempting, and it lures us deeper and deeper until we have to remember that it's impossible. But I still say that for 80 to 90% of science fiction, it is idea-driven. Yeah. Excluding science fantasy and space opera stuff like Star Wars. Well, you remember the back cover editorial of the first Galaxy Oh, yeah, magazine. Galaxy. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. very famous. We talked about that in a previous episode. So... I guess that's as far as we should go in trying to define science fiction, because we're just going to go down a rabbit hole and fall into quicksand if we keep at it. But I think we've made some pretty solid points here. So of all of the stories that we've done this year, what are your favorites? Well, I saw your list, and I immediately decided that what was on your list wouldn't be on mine. We definitely agree on a couple of them. Oh, yeah. Your number two and three were on my first list before I looked at yours, and I had to take them off. So... Mother of Invention by Tom Godwin, which is basically Flight of the Phoenix on a planet covered with diamonds. Right. That was a very imaginative story. I wouldn't put it on my top favorite list, but I admired the just imaginative setting of that diamond planet. Yeah. I think my favorite part of it is not the ending, which is a little, what would you say? Contrived. Yes, contrived is that they land on this planet and it's covered with diamonds and everyone's, oh, wow, hey, cool, lots of diamonds all over the place. As a problem-solving story, it's kind of cool that the things that they do dealing with the planet full of diamonds. Yes, the problems that come up where they realize, oh, wait a minute, if you have a planet covered with diamonds, you have diamond dust. All your machinery is going to just start wearing itself out instantly. I love that part yep, of that. That was really good. Business as Usual During Alterations by Ralph Williams. And that is a puzzle solving. And it's a fun puzzle solving because it's like eight different problems in a row. It's yeah. One cascading series of problems after another. I did like that story quite a bit too. It's a really good problem solving because of that cascading effect. And then we just had the episode one or two shows ago or three or four. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Great Nebraska Sea, just because it is fun. It was. There's a reason why that story has been anthologized a bunch of times, because it's fun. It's just a fun little story that <laughs> millions of people die, but on the other hand, afterwards, we had much better water skiing and fishing. <laughs> yes, we, we put up a monument somewhere. Yeah. So what are your three favorites? Well, I've actually got four favorites. You only told me three. Okay, so I'm sorry I cheated. But you're going to agree with me on one of them for sure. Okay. You said two of them were already on your list. Yes. So The Stars, My Destination by Alfred Bester. I freaking love that story because it is so epic and sweeping and action-packed and so inventive. And it's got a great, almost unlikable protagonist. He's kind of an asshole at the beginning of the story just like a real asshole gets screwed over and left to die and then the rest of the story is him trying to get revenge on everybody that left him to die it's so good it is just exactly the sort of thing that i would love to write as a science fiction story 
action-packed, great characters, imaginative settings, and a kind of surprisingly complex story to it. There are parts of it I didn't like, but you could chop it up into three, maybe four different pieces, and I would like the pieces individually. I could see that, because it really is like three separate stories in a way. And then there's the wonderful little story, The Waveries. The cozy end of the world. I love the fact that Frederick Brown sets up this really interesting alien invasion where these energy beings mix themselves into the radio waves of the planet and basically destroy modern technology by destroying all of our electrical stuff. And the world reverts back to like the 1800s with horses and steam engines and and then everybody just adjusted and they all lived happily ever after. Because it's better this way. Yes, I love that. I love the fact that they didn't defeat the aliens and it was actually kind of a good thing that the aliens destroyed civilization because everybody lived better after that. Of course, it wouldn't have been everybody. Well, yes, but... But we put up a monument to those who yeah, died. Again, yeah. Wonderful little story. And then the one I know you love. Yes. The Little Black Bag by Cornbluth. If I was going to say the 20 great short stories in science fiction, maybe even the 10 greatest stories in science fiction, I would put this one on the list. Yes. If I taught a science fiction writing class, I would make them study the beginning up until the point where he finds the bag. Right. It's absolutely a beautiful portrayal of this at the complete bottom alcoholic trying to get his wine home and having the bottle break. It's just written so beautiful. well. Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful piece of writing. And then the rest of the story is fun and clever, too. Yeah. Love that story. That is one of my favorites. Always will be one of my favorites. And then the last one is one that I think we disagreed on a little bit. Scanners Live in Vain by Cordwainer Smith. I fell in love with Cordwainer Smith. I really had not read anything by him previously. And this story and the Game of Rat and Dragon that we also did led me to start reading the Instrumentality of Man collection of his. And, oh my God, is he a brilliant and imaginative writer who creates situations that are so unique. I just love everything he's done. You are absolutely right. We did disagree on that story. Yes. But it is considered one of the great stories in science fiction history. What did I call it at the time? It was a Chauncey Gardner story? (laughs) It It is kind of, yeah. But that's a classic. So I've got the weight of science fiction fandom on my side on that one. Well, now... Part of doing the show involves researching and discovering things that we hadn't known before about stories, authors, or the field itself. That's been one of my favorite parts of this whole experience. So what are your favorite? When we did Alamagusa, the Hugo Award-winning story by Eric Frank Russell. And others. And others. So... I didn't hate that story, but it bothered me that a Hugo was awarded to a gimmick story like that. You do honestly have a point about that. Yeah. So it got me to wondering, it almost seemed like an urban legend type of thing. And I did a bunch of research and I found going back to the 1940s, going back into the 1930s, and then going all the way back to the 19-teens, a variation of that basic story that was always a military or a naval story about an inspection where they had a list of things and it was called a whatchamacallit or an alamagusa or like there's a smudge yeah they faked it and then they found out later it was a common ordinary object and the whole thing was just a big joke 
that was fun. It was fun because I, I had problems with that story. And I found a little bit of like, aha, you see, Mr. Russell, I, I'm i on to you. You just plagiarized this from a bunch of sources. Well, I couldn't prove that he actually did plagiarize it. And he is a very good writer. But it, it was taken from a common source. And he basically took that and put it in outer space. And that's what made it a science. This is the 20%. Yes. You were talking about the 20%? Yeah. This is a 20% story because this story was literally told repeatedly as a Navy story. And he just took that and just put it in outer space. And that made it a science fiction story simply because it was in outer space. This was the very first Hugo given for a short story. At some future episode, I'm going to pull out a bunch of stories from that same year and say, okay, here's three stories that were better than Alamagusa that should have got the Hugo instead of him. That's on the list of future episodes. I think I know one, but we'll move on. When I get around to that, we will do that. Now, the other fun thing was the whole Kirk Allen episode relating to Cordwainer Smith. I do not remember this. So Cordwainer Smith's real name is Paul Leinbarger. Yeah. And Paul Leinbarger was a very important figure in World War II. He basically was one of the inventors of psychological warfare. Now I remember this. And he, throughout the 1950s and 1960s, worked, quote unquote, with the CIA and other agencies doing unspecified government work. So he was probably involved in all kinds of high-level black ops type stuff, and in the 1950s, there was a famous book published by a New York psychologist who talked about different clients that he had. And one of them was a client that he called Kirk Allen, who believed that he lived an alternate life as a warrior on the planet Mars, a very much the Edgar Rice Burroughs type Mars scenario, and that when he dreamed, he returned in the flesh to Mars and was actually living out these adventures. And a lot of contemporary science fiction writers said, oh yeah, that was Leinbarger. He was Kirk Allen. He believed he was living on Mars half of his life. Did Cordwainer Smith explicitly tell science fiction writers that he believed that? No. I don't know how people knew, but there were other writers at the time who said, oh yeah, it was him. So, But they never said, he told us. It's not provable. It's just some... People asserted it was him, and the circumstances of who Kirk Allen was roughly fit Paul Leinbarger, too. Yeah, when you know someone, you get little hints here and there until you're certain, and it's unfortunate we don't have a record of that. Maybe he let it slip at a cocktail party once or something, I don't know. Yeah, and the next day he said, it's all a joke. Yeah, and the last fun bit of research that I did was basically, again, not conclusively, but I kind of proved that Ray Harryhausen and Ray Bradbury colluded to get cash to Bradbury when Harryhausen made The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms in the early 1950s. That was the first giant monster attacks New York City movie. That was Harryhausen's first solo special effects job. And a year or so prior to that movie going into production, Ray Bradbury had published a story called The Foghorn about a giant dinosaur coming out of the ocean and attacking a lighthouse. And coincidentally, that movie had a scene where a giant dinosaur came out of the ocean and attacked a lighthouse. And the producers always said, oh, it was just a coincidence. And we noticed it and said, oh, what a coincidence. I guess we better give some money to Ray Bradbury so he doesn't sue us. And I always thought that was bullshit. Yeah. And I basically found enough evidence to make the case. And by the way, Ray Harryhausen, Ray Bradbury, best friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, 
I don't think we ever really agreed on the exact sequence of things, but we did agree that Harryhausen and Bradbury had allowed this to happen on purpose. Yes. Whether it was Harryhausen doing a favor for Bradbury or Harryhausen throwing that scene in there because he thought it was a good idea. And I'm pretty sure it was Harryhausen helping a friend out by making sure that got in the movie and then he got a check out of it and they put it in the advertising saying from the yeah. Saturday Evening Post story by Ray Bradbury. So that was fun. That was like going all the way back to my, my youth, scratching an itch finally. That was fun. So what about you? What about some of the stuff that you've learned or did research on throughout the course of the last year? I really like the long-term history of science fiction, the 10,000-foot level. I believe early on, you recall that I insisted on naming every era, and I came yes. up with a couple extra ones. Yeah. You were a little bit more specific about the ages of science fiction, and I just said the whole thing is 40 years long, from 26 to 66, and it's the golden age. Yeah. So my list covers items of history that interacted with the field of science fiction. Finding out about the 1957 collapse of the American News Company was huge to me. I had no idea that it ever happened. You were the one that brought it up, and it explained so much about what happened to magazines in the late 50s. Yeah, basically you had one printing company that handled the printing for most comic book companies, most magazines, and they went out of business through a combination of incompetence and malfeasance. Well, corporate raider. Greed. Yeah, they were caught red-handed doing some shady stuff. And because they just suddenly went out of business, that threw all of those industries into a spiral, scrambling to try to find someone to print their magazines. And then the magazines that were kind of hanging on by a fingernail at the time collapsed, and a lot of them died because they just couldn't survive that particular calamity. There was a lesser but similar disruption to science fiction publishing in 1943 with the wartime paper shortages. Right, which helped to begin the death of the pulp magazines, that the cost of paper put a lot of magazines out of business by the end of the war or shortly after the war, and which led to the magazines, like the science fiction magazines, switch to a digest format. Yes. By the way, the shortage resulted in what was always a mystery to me. Astounding science fiction was in a near digest size up to around 1942, and then they decided to go to the larger, and I'm not sure what the size is called. There's a term for it, but I don't yeah. remember. And then three months later, they had to drop back down to proper digest. Those are two key moments that dramatically impacted the growth or decline of science fiction. And then just generally, not going to go too heavy in this because this may be the topic of an episode, the origin of early fandom. I found it really interesting how it was created by the magazines, not by the fans. Well, yes, that's true. Gernsbach had a mailing list. He started the first fan club for science fiction. That helped keep his magazines alive by being able to send out mail subscriptions for the magazine. And Campbell. And Campbell contributed to fandom as well. By the way, let me throw in my favorite part about Campbell in the early fandom is the moment there was conflict between two fandom groups. He basically just backed away. He's like, okay, okay, you guys yeah, go Work ahead. that out between yourselves. Yeah. In order to understand the history of science fiction, early fandom is hugely important. Science fiction probably wouldn't have survived as a genre. Yeah, it may have been created by the magazines, but it was vital. Sustained, because a lot of these fans from the 1930s went on to become writers 
and editors and publishers. We just had an episode where we talked about Gnome Press, how important that was in keeping the old stuff that was printed in the pulps alive. That was by a couple of fans that were afraid that their favorite stories would go away. So they created a publishing house to keep them going. Yeah, fan involvement was one of the major factors in the development and survival of science fiction. I think it's wonderful that in an industry that was so ephemeral with the the pulps, that the fans had almost this instinct to preserve things to the point where in this day, you can get a digital copy of something like 95% of all science fiction magazines published. Not always a legal copy, but still they exist. Right. And thanks to the fans. Well, to close it out, I have a question. Sure. We've discussed many different kinds of science fiction stories. What is your favorite type of story? I would say any story that has really imaginative and complex world building. I love adventure. Like epic stories? It doesn't have to be epic so much. Yes, that helps for it to be epic. But even a small scale story, if it has really complex and interesting world building, I love that. Because I love the creativity that's displayed in world building. The problem with fantasy is that its world building is often based on a handful of similar models. Medieval Europe, Vikings, barbarians, fairy tales. I mean, it's very familiar territory. But with science fiction, it's literally no limit to the imagination. Yes, there may be robots and spaceships and aliens, but The way you present them, the way that you meld the elements together, to me, it's a much, much richer environment in science fiction than it is in fantasy. And I love that. How about you? I'm a natural puzzle solver. So my favorite science fiction stories are the ones with puzzles to be solved in there. From small, simple ones to really complicated ones. I love it when you have a chance of trying to guess what direction they're going to go in and the satisfaction of when they do finish that puzzle, they do solve it, they come to the end of the story. I wish they made more of those stories than they do now. All right, that's it for our anniversary, our one-year anniversary episode. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a wonderful ride for the both of us, and we hope to continue on for at least another year. So I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the skies. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.